Blog Talk Radio. Through rap. 
his effort to reach the young people and share our history with them. Well, tonight, tonight, I would like to share some more of our history with all of you. Though this is not the celebratory history, it is history, and it is American history. We often hear people talk about Black Wall Street, but how many have actually taken the time to read about Black Wall Street? Well, obviously, this is a talk show, so we're going to talk a little bit about it, but I'm going to do something a little different tonight. After the introduction, I'm going to play, hopefully it'll play, an MP3 audio clip of the massacre and destruction of Black Wall Street 96 years ago today, tonight. And it lasted into June 1st. You have to listen to this if you've not heard the story. I also included a couple of links on the Facebook event page. So you can go to Our Own Voices Live and check out the event page for this particular show. Click on the links. There's three of them. One is from the Smithsonian Eyewitness Testimony, which is really, it's a video of the audio that you're hearing tonight. The audio that you're hearing is only a part of the story. It goes on in further detail on the video. And there's another audio uh, for you all to hear if you want to do uh, more research into it. So a little bit about Our Own Voices before we get started. Our Own Voices, Our Own Voices Live actually comes from uh, Our Own Voices, a print and digital magazine. Our Own Voices Live is a radio show featuring people and stories from our community in Las Vegas, the surrounding area, and someplace near you. America is the greatest country on earth due to its culture diversity and not in spite of it. Our mission is to help bridge the culture and ethnic divide in America by working together to build the greatest bridge in history to unite us. Some of the ways we do it is with like shows like Our Own Voices Live. We also have Our Own Voice on Twitter, Our Own Voices on Facebook, Our Own Voices on YouTube. Of course, we have Our Own Voices Live, which is where the event page is located. So pretty much you type in Our Own Voices and you're going to get something to do with us. As I said earlier, Our Own Voices Live is a spinoff of Our Own Voices, the digital and print magazine. And what that magazine is designed to do is to educate African-Americans on African and African-American history and culture, as well as expose others to our history and culture and to teach us about others' history and culture. After all, we are all Americans. We come from different places in the world and sort of merge here in the United States of America but we're all from someplace, but how much do we really know about each other? Because I believe the more that we know about each other, the less that we fear one another, the less people will be able to use divisive rhetoric, oftentimes of stereotype prejudices and biases that build walls between us. You see, I want to be like Power Man, Luke Cage, and knock down some of those walls. Tonight we're going to talk about a time when there was obvious walls. 
these walls not only caused a divide, but it also caused death. It's one of the few times, if not the only time, that bombs were dropped from airplanes onto an American community, on American citizens. That's right. It's a time when our law enforcement and even some of our militia turned against its citizens. That's right. That's the massacre of Black Wall Street. It is. It happened in Greenwood, which is a part of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So what we're going to talk about tonight, our show is titled tonight, Black Wall Street Massacre's 96th Anniversary, a firsthand account of the massacre of black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A quick overview of what Tulsa, Oklahoma was. So what was Greenwood? Greenwood is a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's still there. As one of the most prominent concentrations of African-American businesses in the United States during the early 20th 20th century, its popularity is popular known as America's Black Wall Street. In Taylor, they listed as the Tulsa race riot. I need to get that changed. We need to get that changed because it wasn't a race riot per se. It was a race massacre of 1921 in which white residents, some people might call them white terrorists, massacred hundreds of black residents and raised the neighborhood within hours. The riot was one of the most devastating massacres in the history of U.S. race relations, destroying the once thriving Greenwood community. The good part is, if there is a good part, is they were knocked down, but they didn't stay down. Because within five years after the massacre, yes, massacre, not riot, surviving residents who chose to remain in Tulsa because many left rebuilt much of the district. They did this in spite of opposition of many whites in the Tulsa political establishment and even business leaders who established punitive zoning laws to prevent the Greenwood's reconstruction. That's right. They didn't want Black Wall Street to come back. came back even better than before. It resumed being a vital black community, and it did that really up until the 50s. So they knocked them down. They shot them down. They dropped bombs down from the sky, but they still survived and came back. But make no mistake, there were many deaths in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street. Even a soldier put on his uniform, a black man, a black soldier, who served fighting for this country's war, put on his uniform, in the hopes that they would spare his life, but it didn't save him. This is history. It's not always good, but it is history. It is the story. So without further ado, let's see if we can play the first portion of this. And that's probably we're just going to play it right on probably to the end of the show. Because it is a story that needs to be told. 
call in and comment, give us a call at area code 101 years old, and I, I'm not supposed to be alive, but God let me here for a purpose. I had an experience. I have never met anyone that I had to see. We had a neighborhood barbershop, so I went over to get a haircut and, uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the barber was cutting my hair, and one barber said to the other one, said, hurry up and uh, finish up on that kid's hair and let's go down on the railroad tracks and see if we can shoot some niggers. We opened the window so we could hang out and look and it, it smelled a, a terrible smell. I don't Did they burn bodies? We opened the first crate and looked down and there were the bodies of three black men. We shut the lid down real quick and uh, proceeded to go over to the next crate which is much larger and opened it, and there was at least four bodies in that crate. They were all just piled in there. That night, just about dusk, up on Reservoir Hill, which was just south of the house, there's a great big cross burning. And all these people up there was, well, it was a clan, is what they were, because we could see them from our house. And they was burning this cross, and we could hear people crying and screaming. the 20th century, Tulsa, Oklahoma, had the richest per capita wealth of any place on earth. It was dubbed the oil capital of the world, the magic city, and the city of dreams. Among those who traveled to Tulsa was a young teacher named Mary Parrish. I came to Tulsa from Rochester, New York in 1918. I had heard of the town since girlhood and the many opportunities to make money. But I came because of the wonderful cooperation I observed among our people, especially among our businessmen and women. Every face seemed to wear a smile. After spending years of struggling and sacrifice, people have begun to look upon Tulsa as the Negro metropolis of the Southwest. Going north to Archer Street for two or more blocks, one could see nothing but Negro businesses. Going east, you would behold Greenwood Avenue, the Negro's Wall Street. There were homes of beauty and splendor, and the schools and churches were well attended. It was a city within a city, and some malicious newspapers took pride in referring to it as Little Africa. The readings from that time that were racist, inspired by racists, from the National Guard to the Klan controlling the legislature, 
when he spoke of blacks, blacks were to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And they did. They did. The money in my community didn't turn over the traditional three or four times. It turned over eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve times. That was legitimate and illegitimate uh, monies to be made that fueled that economy. So my community was the Vegas of the 20. It was roaring. I can remember when I was a child that uh, the Ku Klux Klan, and there were probably, oh, in my opinion, uh, a couple thousand of them that would all robe up with their uh, hoods on and their gowns and and all, and, and uh, women and men and children. They had little children, maybe three feet high. They were all up and holding on to somebody's hand, they would march too. Usually they would form up on about uh, uh, 7th Street and uh, Main in there someplace, and then the police would clear all of the cars off of Main Street, and they would march and they would fill uh, the street from curb to curb, and it seemed like thousands of them. There might have been 2,000. I don't know. I don't remember. We used to go up and watch the Ku Klux Klan in their rally on top of Standpipe Hill. And they were in their white robes and their pointed cap attire. And we used to just watch them they had their torches burning and having a meeting. We knew not to get too close to them. The Klan was founded in 1865 to intimidate Southern blacks in the post-Civil War South. The reign of terror lasted 15 years, but as the movement died out, a legend, if not a lie, remained. Aging Civil War veterans told heroic stories of how the Klan had saved the South from domination by Negroes and Northern carpetbaggers. By 1915, there was no Klan in America. Three months later, an extraordinary event took place that would resurrect the Klan and its legend. The event was the release of a pioneering motion picture, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. It was based on a best-selling book called The Klansman. In many cases, Klan recruitment ads ran next to movie ads. Birth of a Nation played to 50 million people, approximately half of the population of the United States. It played across Oklahoma with a tremendous run in Tulsa. The Birth of a Nation stimulated the organization of the Ku Klux Klan, which in turn maintained a, a high profile and, a, and, and, uh, and stirred up uh, many uh, whites to, uh, to acts of recrimination and of savagery uh, in this period. When you have thousands of white men coming back from World War I, bringing back Souvenir, Lewis, Spandau, and Browning submachine guns, and a variety of other weapons that they brought back from the battlefield. And then they can't find jobs. 
and the power structure within the city at that time, as was occurring in other cities, would enlist them in the Ku Klux Klan and blame their problems on Jews, African Americans, and Catholics. It was a simple answer to a complex problem for simple people. Meanwhile, they could stand in downtown Tulsa and look at the mansions in Little Africa, in the Black Wall Street, and seethe It was a typical Monday morning for a 19-year-old black man named Dick Rowland. He worked as a boot black in the downtown area. Because there was no restroom facilities, Rowland had permission to use the restroom on the top floor of the Drexel building. In order to reach the top floor, he had to use the elevator. Dick Rowland didn't look down when he went to get on the elevator, and therefore, because of the unevenness of the two floors, he stumbled and started falling, and he reached out to keep break his fall and touched his operator, and she hollered rape. And so they arrested, the police came and arrested Dick Rowland about 10 o'clock in the morning. And that afternoon, the Tribune came out and told what happened at the, in the Rue building. And uh, they... Uh, after they told what was going to happen, then they said, it looks like there will be a lynching in Tulsa tonight. The newspaper described Roland as Diamond Dick and told of an attempted assault upon a poor orphan girl who worked as an elevator operator to pay her way through college. The article said that she had scratches on her hands and face. In fact, she was not an orphan. She had deserted her husband in Kansas City served with divorce papers in Tulsa two months before. And she was neither scratched nor had torn clothes. The real incident isn't the incident in the elevator. The real incident is what happens over at the offices of the Tulsa Tribune, which was the city's daily afternoon newspaper. And we know there were a couple articles in it that talked about what happened at the Drexel. Uh, one was a front page article that said something like, Nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. But there was a second article might have been an editorial that we think was called Two Lynch Negro Tonight. We don't know really what it said, but we do know from white sources, from black sources, from um, government officials and others, that there was an article there uh, suggesting that a lynch mob should gather downtown and to lynch Dick Rowland. Talk of a lynching was prevalent throughout the city, and by evening, white crowds began to form around the courthouse. A burning cross was visible on Standpipe Hill, which overlooked North Tulsa and Greenwood. The sheriff took the elevator to the jail, located on the top floor of the courthouse, and set up a barricade. In Greenwood, it was believed that a lynching was imminent. And mob rule without legal consequences was not without precedent in Tulsa. A few months before, a lynch mob had taken accused killer one Ray Belton from the Tulsa jail. Mile-long procession of cars escorted him to a tree in a county road where he was lynched. Local police officers directed traffic. 
Three months later, in the town of Holdenville, 70 miles away, a white mob took a black man from the county jail, hanged him from a telephone pole, and riddled his body with bullets. He was accused of attacking a white woman. In Wagner, 30 miles from Tulsa, another lynching took place. A white man down in Wagner, Oklahoma, had him ask a colored girl for sex. And she told him her price. He had sex and he didn't want to pay her. He didn't pay her. She took out a knife and cut his throat and killed him. So they arrested her. They lynched her. And then they drug her body up and down the main street of Wagner, Oklahoma. And the Negroes in the community had decided there will not be a lynching in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, it is not considered a crime for a man to kill a Negro. In recent years, there have been many lynchings in Oklahoma. There is yet to be chronicled the instance where any individual has paid a legal penalty or where an officer has been removed from office for failure to protect the life of his prisoners from criminal violence. It is perfectly safe at any time and at any place for any considerable number of men together to take a prisoner from the hands of an officer inflict the penalty of death. Carlos Weekly, June 1921. Most of the news that people received came from their newspapers. Uh, it's incredible to, to look at the content of those newspapers and realize that uh, it was a constant barrage of uh, articles appearing concerning lynchings of black people. Uh, this was over and over and, and over again. In fact, uh, two black people a week were being lynched in America at this time. The evening being a pleasant one, my little girl had not retired but was watching the people from the window. Occasionally she would call to me, Mother, look at the cars full of people. I would reply, Baby, do not disturb me when I read. Finally, she said, Mother, I see men with guns. Then I ran to the window and looked out. There I saw many people gathered in little squads, talking excitedly. Going downstairs to the street, I was told of the threatened lynching and that some of our group were going to give added protection to the boy. I am told that this little bunch of black men marched up to the jail where there were already over 500 white men gathered and that this number was soon swelled to over a thousand. Someone fired a stray shot and to use the expression of General Grant, all hell broke loose. shot on Main Street, right in front of the biggest picture palace. His falling brought the crowd to a halt. They just stood and looked at him. Three or four ambulances clanged down to the place, but the crowd turned on them and showed their guns. One said, don't touch the blankety-blank. 
the ambulance workers didn't quite know what to do, so they turned off their engines and just stood there, blocking the street. Then there was a whoop a block away. Some of the Negroes had tried to organize and get their friend. The crowd surged forward, trampling the man on the sidewalk who was about dead. He lay writhing on the sidewalk under a billboard from which smiled winsomely the face of Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart. The atmosphere was festive as the police department commissioned 500 special deputies. These could best be described as clan deputies. The only prerequisite was that they must be white. Most were not even asked their names or addresses. One black man was erroneously sworn in. It occurred to me I could get sworn in as one of the special deputies. It was easy. My skin was apparently white, and that was enough. After some 50 or 60 of us had been sworn in, a villainous-looking man remarked casually, even with a note of happiness in his voice, Now you can go out and shoot any nigger you see, and the law will be behind you. The Ku Klux Klan mob, having largely been made up of veterans, began to militarily organize themselves. And they divided down into squads and ran a skirmish line along Archer. After watching the men unload on First Street, where we could see them from our windows, we heard such a buzz and noise that on running to the door to get a better view of what was going on, the sight our eyes beheld made our poor hearts stand still for a moment. There was a great shadow in the sky, and upon a second look, we discerned that this cloud was caused by fast-approaching airplanes. It then dawned upon us that the enemy had organized in the night and was invading our district, the same as the Germans invaded France and Belgium. Looking south out of the window of what then was the Woods building. We saw carloads of men with rifles unloading up near First Street. Then the truth dawned upon us that our men were fighting in vain to hold their dear Greenwood, Mary Parish. Whites were given a signal by a whistle, and the outrage took place. All of this happened while innocent Negroes were slumbering and did not have the least idea they would fall victims to such brutality. At the sound of another whistle, more than a dozen aeroplanes went up and began to drop turpentine balls on the Negro residences, while 5,000 whites with machine guns and other deadly weapons fired in all directions. Negro men, women, and children began making haste to flee to safety, but to no avail, as they were met on all sides with volleys of shot. They were killed in great numbers as they ran trying to flee to safety. Torchlights were used to burn up the Negro settlement, and in the meantime, they used large trucks loading up pianos, victrolas, and other articles that were left in the Negro homes. A.H. 
black truck up to the vacated Negro homes and loaded everything movable and of value. Every bit of money found on their persons was taken. Masonic rings were removed from the fingers, watches and chains from their persons. In fact, everything of a material nature, preparatory to the cruel initiation which had not yet ended, was taken from them. And so, penniless, in a destitute condition, they were corralled first one place and another. G.A. Gray. Once they framed that skirmish line, they had marched into the north side of the downtown area, and they shot everybody they could find. They burned every home, but not before looting it first. They burned every business. They burned every car. They burned everything, systematically, block by block, house by house. They went all the way through the city. At the same time, the telephone lines were cut, the telegraph lines were cut, and the railroad leading into Tulsa was uh, blockaded. There was no way to communicate what was going on in Tulsa with anybody else because it was very easy to cut the city off. And that's exactly what the mayor and the city commission and the Ku Klux Klan wanted because it gave them the opportunity to clean out the entire African-American area of the city without being interfered with. And they were doing it very systematically. The mob would not permit firemen to battle the blaze. They looted stores and pawn shops for guns and ammunition, but they also took walking suits, tools, tires, and jewelry. Carloads of whites would occasionally venture into the black area, shooting indiscriminately. And I said to my mother, I said, Mama, we better get out of here, cause my wife is are really tearing up Jack. They're, they're burning into places and killing people, and they're going to kill us. And we were sitting out, and the people kept running. They just opened the gate and come on through and go on out the back. And Mama said, what are you people running for? And you, just, you don't know where you're going? They said, no, they're killing over there, burning the town down over the hill. The technique varied with different groups in the mob. But the general procedure was to go up to a door and put a gun against the lock and blow it off. The flimsy doors would have smashed easily enough, but this was gun night. Once inside the cabin, everything breakable was broken. Trunks and bureau drawers torn open, pictures and telephones wrenched off the walls and trampled. They didn't often find anyone in the houses, because by now the blacks were scurrying ahead of the horror out into the country beyond the town. But sometimes they did find someone with whom they dealt. When they had smashed enough, they scattered around a little kerosene and threw some lighted matches into the mess. If this particular cabin didn't burn well, it would be reset presently by the blaze of the one next door. The houses the mob set fire to without breaking in first were really the most unlucky. Because sometimes there were people in them, panic paralyzed, people who didn't realize with all the noise and fright that the house was on fire, not until it was too late to get out. There's a black veteran who could not believe that this mob would kill a veteran. And as the mob got closer to his home, he put on his uniform and stood out in the front yard at attention. 
The mob killed him and burned his house. In a frenzy of destruction and violence, black corpses were tied to the bumpers of automobiles and dragged through the Greenwood district while bullets were fired into their bodies. Some bodies were hoisted on telephone poles. An elderly black couple was murdered returning from church. A white man mistaken for a black man was summarily executed. Enterprising entrepreneurs snapped pictures of the grisly scenes to be sold later as postcards entitled Running the Negro Out of Tulsa. Death could come easily. Even a defiant glance at a camera could result in instant execution. America's most renowned black surgeon and past president of the State Medical Association, Dr. A.C. Jackson, was shot by a white teenager as he held his hands above his head. He was not killed instantly. His body was thrown into a truck and he was dumped at the convention center where after hours of suffering without medical attention, he bled to death. Cars began to drive slowly along the street. Cars driven by the sort of men who wear their caps backward, visors down their necks, probably not to interfere with their rifle gaze. And the niggers in these houses, they would shout, the gaping children were called in hastily from the curbs. Didn't seem a very educational sight. Not a very safe one. After the first car, so people sent their servants down in the cellar or up in the attic and waited. Then the horde ruffians went down Detroit, looting those beautiful homes of everything valuable and burning them. The machine guns just shattered the walls of the homes. The fire department came out and protected the white homes on the west side of the street. Men and women with torches and women with shopping bags continued their looting and burning of Negro homes. My mother saw some white people coming toward our house and she put us under the bed when she saw them coming. My oldest sister got under first, and then it was my younger sister, and then my brother, and then they pulled me under the bed. Now by this time, the people were coming in, they had torches in their hands. We could see their feet from under the bed, and one stepped on my finger, and as I went to scream, my sister put her hand over my mouth. I don't know what, I don't know today as to what would have happened had they heard us under the bed. But they came in and they set the curtains on fire, set our house on fire then went out the door, and my mother got us from under the bed. I will always remember that on this day I live. There was the son of a cook in our street. Around 9 o'clock, the man he worked for came and asked for Hattie. He was in a car with some other men. It seemed that the boy thought he ought to get to his job. Before he knew it, he'd been caught in the fighting around the railroad tracks and crawled under a freight car to hide. Someone went in after him and shot him with a pistol. Now that things were quieting down a little, 
he was lying in the town hall where the militia were assembling the blacks. But his employer was afraid he wouldn't live many more hours. If Hattie wanted to see the boy, he said, he would take her down and look out for her. But she was afraid to go. He couldn't blame her, really. Some of the house Negroes who had allowed themselves to be put in those wandering cars and escorted to the safety of the town hall had been shot at as they drove through the streets. It wasn't the ride an old woman wanted to undertake, even to see her boy alive. The boy's boss understood. He went back himself and got a doctor and stayed with the boy till he died. The burning of that flesh, you could smell. It was horrible. And then those those crosses burning up on the, on the reservoir hill, which up at that time, there's no homes up there. About 7 o'clock, the lights on home guards came from the men. Then they took the women and children, promising them safety. After they had the homes vacated, one bunch of whites would come in and loot. Even women with shopping bags would come in, open drawers, take every kind of finery from clothing to silverware and jewelry. Men were carrying out the furniture, cursing as they did so, saying, these damn Negroes have better things than a lot of us white people. I stayed until my home was called fire. Then I ran to the hillside where there were throngs of white people, women, men and children, even babies, watching and taking snapshots of the proceedings of the mob. Some remarked that the city ought to be sued for selling them damn niggas' property so close to the city. One woman noticed the First Baptist Church, which is a beautiful structure, located near a white residential district. And she said, Yonder is a nigger church. Why ain't they burning it? The reply was, it's in a white district. I saw the bombs dropping and the church explode. The six airplanes that I saw flying over Standpipe Hill and dropping the bombs on Mount Zion Baptist Church. Burned that church and it just completed 40 days. And it was burned. The white church on 4th Street was a frame church. Our church was better than the white people's church. This church was only 40 days old. It was truly a symbol of black prosperity, and it was burnt to the ground, allegedly because ammunition was being stored in the basement or some such nonsense. People were seen to flee from their burning homes, some with babes in their arms and leading, crying, excited children by the hand, others old and feeble, all fleeing to safety. Yet, seemingly, I could not leave. I walked as one in a, a horrible dream. By this time, my little girl was up and dressed, but I made her lie down on the dupole in order that the bullets must penetrate it before reaching her. By this time, a machine gun had been installed in the granary and was raining down bullets on our section. Mary Parrish. The most horrible scenes of this occurrence was to see women dragging their children while running to safety. 
and the dirty white rascals firing at them as they ran. Some of them were pursued for more than 12 or 15 miles, and some never returned. Negro hospitals with numbers of sick were burned, and many people perished in the flames, not being able to get to a place of safety. Women were chased from their homes, naked, with clothes in their hands, and volleys of shots fired at them as they were fleeing. Some with babies in their arms. A.H. As I neared Standpipe Hill, I could see homes on Eastern and Detroit burning, and also discovered that the enemy had located on the hill and that our district was entirely surrounded. We thought that we were leaving the fire behind, but found that our danger was increasing for a machine gun was located on the hillside. They came over and they had machine guns up there and he was manning the machine gun and he and his companions, they were shooting down on the people. They had machine guns up there. Shooting at us, my husband and I, when we came out, they were shooting at us. We didn't get any shots. They killed one of our fine doctors. I can never forget a family who started out and had the misfortune to lose one wheel off their wagon and therefore had to get out and walk. In that numbers was a mother and a father with a six-month-old infant. Such a fine and healthy baby. The father would run along and carry it a while when the mother would take it until she was tired out. When they both were just about exhausted, the father cried out, Will someone help us? Mrs. Roser, Davis Skinner, who told about the night of the riot when it broke out on Greenwood, she was asleep. Her husband awakened her and said, Wife, come on, there's a riot on. And they left fleeing, she in her gown and house shoes, and joined with the neighbor next door who had had a stillborn baby early in the day. They were going to bury the baby the next day, put it in a little shoebox. And uh, Mrs. Uh, Skinner said that while they were running, mobsters shooting at them, bullets zinging at them, people shoving and bumping into each other, this lady dropped that little shoebox. And she got down on her hands and knees to try to find it and she couldn't, and her husband just dragged her away, said, you're going to get killed, we've got to go. And he dragged her away, and they never found that little baby. This lady wept when she told me that. She was 98 years old, and that had been 75 years earlier, and she wept and said, I often wonder what happened to that poor little baby. We both wept. We came out after several shots were fired into the house by the mob. Two or three whites thrust guns in each man's face and side and took him downstairs. As I neared the bottom of the steps, I was met by a man who very unkindly treated me. Seeing a man with hands raised, he came up to the blind side and struck me in the jaw, after which I was questioned and my money taken. The worst thing of all was being humiliated before little boys between the ages of 12 and 16 years knowing these youngsters would grow up to try the same thing when they matured that others tried. But with less success, I am hoping. J.C. Latimer. One of the classic photos that comes from the, the riot is that of a perhaps 15, 16-year-old, uh, probably would be referred to in those days as a hooligan, uh, strutting proudly in front of the camera, 
with the burning and, and terrible circumstances in the background, uh, puffing a cigar, carrying not one but two firearms. As you look at that picture and you think of what's going on around him, uh, you, you can't help but hope that uh, he, he will be taught a lesson about life's justice. The certainty that many blacks had that whites took their furniture, took their clothes, took various other personal possessions, and, uh, and used them. And then, having taken those things for their use, then they burned and bombed the, the black part of town. It was a surprise. And they came over here and burned our homes, stole our clothes. Some of our people had to take their own clothes over white people right here in Tulsa. The heavy air was soaked with the scent of honeysuckle, as extravagant and lavishly unreal as was the gunfire. We've been in this prairie country a year. It proved always surprising. An acrid underhand of burnt powder began to cut through the perfume and flowers. Tulsa's newspapers described the event as a military adventure. The black people defending their homes were described as the enemy. Gun-toting white men were referred to as riflemen or soldiers, and blacks were termed snipers. The mob, it was called a volunteer army. Blacks with guns were called a mob. Marauding whites were called patrols. At approximately 9.15 a.m., the National Guard troops from Oklahoma City arrived by train. In all my experience, I've never witnessed such a scene. 25,000 whites armed to the teeth were ranging through the city in utter and ruthless defiance of every concept of law and righteousness. Motor cars bristling with guns swept through the city, their occupants firing at will. General Charles Barrett. Fanny was our laundry. She lived in Greenwood with an ancient uncle who'd been the messenger in a bank for 20 years. They knew there was trouble, of course, but the mob had missed them so far. Uncle Zach had never been late to the bank, and he trusted white folks. He thought maybe if he put on his uniform and they saw it, he put it on and started out to work. Someone shot him at the corner. Fanny could see him lying there. She didn't dare go out and get him. Mob was so close. As North Tulsa burned and its citizens murdered and arrested, the guard set up camp and began to prepare a breakfast. When a local citizen urged the commander to take some action to save property and lives, he was arrested. Martial law was declared at 11.29 a.m. The Ku Klux Klan, realizing that they were now up against an organized military force, uh, withdrew out of the area and dissipated back into their neighborhoods. It was very much like a guerrilla operation where you could no longer tell who were the combatants because they weren't wearing uniforms and now they were part of the civilian society. Detention areas were set up at a local park, the convention center, and the baseball park. Every African American had to fill out and carry an identification card, which had to be signed by a white employer and approved by a local official. 
If approved, the prisoner was given a ribbon that he or she had to wear. The ribbon read, Police Protection. Failure to wear the ribbon resulted in immediate arrest and confinement. A black person could only be released from detention if he or she was vouched for by a white person. About 11 o'clock, they took my invalid mother, supposedly, to the convention hall for safety. Upon entering the convention hall, I failed to find my mother, so I went in search of her. I found my mother at North Methodist Church. I tried to get a pass to send her away, but failed to get one. She remained unconscious for two weeks and passed away. I feel that this damnable affair has ruined us all. Kathy Kenlong. We hadn't heard from my father. And although I was six years old, I remember quite well the anxiety that all of us felt. Where's my daddy? Where's my husband? Mother would say, and and so forth. And so we 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 had a we had a period of agonizing waiting, and that was an awful awful experience. And it was several days. I don't know how many. In the absence of, uh, of telephones and radios and that sort of thing, we didn't know. We had no way of finding out. And so after what seemed to have been an endless period of time, we received a letter from my father saying that he was all right. He, was, he told us that he had been in detention at Convention Hall and that, uh, and that he had nothing except what he had on his back. The prisoners, mostly women and children and the elderly, were marched through the streets with their hands above their heads. The stress, heat, and exertion resulted in the rise of premature birth. Before the day was over, every black person in the city was killed, wounded, arrested, or placed in confinement. hid many of the African-American domestics who worked for them at great jeopardy to them. If a white family during that riot had been found to have hidden an African-American, at the very least, the white family would have been lashed. Terrified black people fled the city to other communities. After reaching this home, the crowd throng there was too large to supply them out of a pail, so a washtub was drafted in the service and pride cast to the wind. We were so famished and our lips parched, the children crying for a drink, that this was the best tasting water we could remember of having tasted. 
Mary Parish. We had an engineer for the Frisco live behind us, and he would give us a day by day how these people were walking down the railroad coming toward Claremore, then coming toward Chelsea, then coming toward Venita. They were just like the rest of the hobos that came to our back door. And they had lots of them with baby buggies, no men at all. All women, lots of old women. On and on we went toward the section line, the crowd growing larger and larger. The question on every lip when a newcomer from town would arrive was, how far had they burned when you left town? After we had gone several miles, we began to see automobile loads of men with guns going east ahead of us. We wondered where they were going, but we were not destined to wonder for long. But as we neared the aviation fields, we saw their destination. The planes were out of the sheds, all in readiness for flying. And these men with high-powered rifles were getting into them. As we went further, we saw several men leaving the fields, going to the house, returning with guns, and heading towards Tulsa. After we had traveled many miles into the country and was turning to find our way to Clamor, we looked up the road and saw Race Lady coming toward us. My lady friend and I went to meet her. She advised us to not to try to pass through a little adjoining town. There was a group of black people that were trying to escape, women, children, and old people like we were trying to escape from this thing. We're going up the railroad tracks that went by um, that hill up there in Collinsville. So that a group of black people came by that hill trying to escape, and somebody thought that they were being attacked and invaded, and apparently they began shooting and killed a whole bunch of those poor folks. The airplanes continued to watch over the fleeing people like great birds of prey watching the victims. Although we were over 13 miles from Tulsa, we could, at about 10 p.m., see the smoke rising from the ruins. The next morning, we were informed that Greenwood had been burned. It was then that I shed my first tears. A truck arrived for us about 9 o'clock, and we started for Tulsa. We did not enter through our section, but we were brought through the white section. Can you imagine the humiliation of coming in like that, with many doors thrown open, watching you pass? Some with pity, and others with smiles. And when a bunch of the colored folks that they were marching down Elgin, uh, I would see them coming and I'd kept my BB gun under the front porch at that time and I would run down and grab the BB gun and stick the barrel out through the lattice work and, and uh, pop the National Guardsmen. Of course, they'd bounce like this and look around and of course I was careful enough that I wasn't going to hit anybody in the or anything like that. These two brothers, the youngest two, 
they were kind of smart-alecky, and they thought, you know, they'd stir up a riot or stink or something. And I can remember standing behind him and crying with my dad just all of them, backhanded one of them in the back of the head because he was going to take a gun. And he wasn't going to shoot at the people. He was going to shoot up in the air. And I remember my crying and saying, begging him not to do it. And my dad, you know, told him he wasn't going to do that to those people. They was only trying to get away themselves. Soon we reached the black district, which was so beautiful and prosperous looking when we left. There we found to be piles of bricks, ashes, and twisted iron representing years of toil and savings. We were horror-stricken. We could not shed a tear. At that hour, we mistrusted every person having a white face or blue eyes. which he had built a crate on the back to carry the greyhounds in. And uh, he took that crate off when he left the greyhounds, wherever it was. He left them at some kennel or other and just had a plain pickup truck. And they, the police saw his truck and they told him to call bodies, dead bodies, to wherever they were taking them. I don't know where they took them. And I saw these two truckloads of bodies, dead bodies. Uh, they were Negroes with their arms and legs sticking out, you know, through the slats. And it frightened me so, but I kept thinking of them in terms of dolls. On the top of the very, very top of the uh, pile of bodies was a little boy just about my age. And his head flipped over like that. And he looked at me, his mouth was open, and he was in brown pants and a blue shirt and uh, just looked like he'd been frightened to death. And uh, so I screamed that Jesse came in, but by that time, the two trucks had passed on. After black Tulsans were incarcerated, curiosity seekers, looters, and souvenir hunters casually strolled through the smoldering ruins. Well, I had a friend, a, a girlfriend, and uh, one day after the riot had... Uh, uh, subsided or possibly was still, they, they were still uh, protecting and giving the colored people sanctuary. Well, she came out and she had a, a package of spearmint gum, Wrigley's spearmint gum. And uh, 
perhaps there were 40 or 50 packages of gum in the little square box, about so square, maybe two inches deep. And she was passing the gum out to all the kids in the neighborhood. And, of course, we asked, where did you get it? And she said, oh, Daddy got it over in Niggertown, which uh, was a clear indication that, that, that white people looted the colored people over in the Greenwood area. When they doubted about it, of course, we didn't think anything about it. We, we just took the gum and chewed it. Martial law was less than benevolent. Field Order Number 3 prohibited the holding of funerals at churches. But in reality, this prohibition pertained to black funerals only. White funerals went on as usual. Overnight, these people had nothing. And uh, they had to start over again. Person who had office and clients or patients or customers had nothing. And the people that were his clients and of their clients and patients and customers had nothing. And so it was extremely difficult for them to get on their feet. It was it was pathetic when you think about it out of all of our seven years. That's when I say, my husband and I lost more than anybody in North Tulsa because we lost seven years of our earning in, in one night. And we had altogether ten different business places for rent. Today I'm paying rent. Few black Tulsans had insurance. Those who did had clauses which voided the policies in case of a riot. Those making a claim had to prove that the city or state government was negligent in protecting their property. An impossible burden because the victors had already begun to rewrite the history and insulate themselves from blame. An all-white grand jury placed the blame for the Holocaust squarely... ...share the rest of it. And you will do so because there's still more to the story. And I hope that you will share the story because it is our history. And we have to be vigilant about our history and what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa wasn't the only place. There were places after that, just like there were places Apology before. To the police commissioners or to the so mayor of the city for having pled with them to clean up the cesspools in the city. will help you better understand what Black Wall Street was and what happened to it. And maybe that'll give you some context as of today. You've been listening to Our Own Voices Live, and the title of our show today and, and into this morning, because it happened on, I believe it was May 31st into June 1st, so I wanted to, I did a little something different. I started the show very late, and I went to cross into another day. I wanted you all to kind of feel it as they were talking. But the title of our show today was called Black Wall Street Massacre's 96th Anniversary, Firsthand Accounts of the Massacre of Black People in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Go to the Our Own Voices 
live Facebook page and leave a comment. And also you can go to the Our Own Voices Live uh, Facebook event page and there's, a, there's about three links there, uh, one that will continue this and then some more that gives you uh, a different takes on what happened that night and that morning and that day. It was a massacre. It was it was a it was a Holocaust. So when people say reparations, should they should that be a righteous cause for reparations? I tried to post this on some Republican sites. I I posted it on some Democratic sites and some progressive sites, green sites. This is America's story. It's a part of it. And this is what happened 96 years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thank you for listening. And share the story.